I'm just looking out here and wondering what a Pharisee looks like. Got some candidates for you. No, I better not point. We've got some candidates, though, and we'll see if we can enlist them. The kind of thinking that we call isolationism has been around since the Garden of Eden. When Cain responded to God's question about Abel by saying, Am I my brother's keeper? Isolationism, the idea that a nation ought not to take part in international alliances, seems to be reflected in some of the rhetoric of war protesters these days. They seem to be saying that the United States has no compelling interest in affairs in other parts of the world, that we ought to use our resources for ourselves and let others use their resources and take care of themselves. Am I my brother's keeper? Seems to be the essence of what they're saying. That same sort of thinking too easily creeps into the minds of Christians regarding our duty to others. We hear people say things like, it's none of my concern, I have enough troubles of my own to worry about. Or, I don't have time to get involved. Or we might hear, well, he got himself into it, let him get himself out of it. Not that such statements are always wrong, but they can reveal an attitude that basically says, I'm not interested in others' problems. I have no responsibility for them. Are we our brother's keeper? In fact, we are. Not in some meddlesome or domineering way, or in a way in which we ourselves become exploited or manipulated. But in a healthy and godly sense, we are our brother's keeper. We have a duty toward others, whether inside God's family or outside, to do them good. Our text today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15, gives us a series of imperative statements which fleshes out some of our duty to others. In what ways ought we to be the keepers of our brothers? Well, it tells us in our text that we are in the first place to admonish the unruly. The word unruly is really a military term. It meant in that language that Paul used, the Greek language, not keeping in rank. It meant to be disorderly or even to be insubordinate. I played in a high school band once upon a time, in another lifetime. And I remember being in marches down the street when it was a real challenge to play the tuba, which was my instrument, or more accurately, the sousaphone, especially when the wind was blowing and catching that big bell. 
and trying to stay in step and in line. Normally I was all the way at the back of the band, which helped a lot, because I could look up and see others in front of me that way. But besides looking at the music, which I rarely memorized, I also had to know which foot was going down when, and I had to keep one eye on the rest of my row to make sure that we were straight and in line. And believe me, there were many times when we were unruly. When the Apostle Paul uses this term, he may have a specific group in mind in the church in Thessalonica. I think the NIV puts it, in fact, admonish the idol. Paul has, perhaps, some people in mind that he addresses more directly in the second letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians in the third chapter, where he uses the same term again, twice. In verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an unruly, undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul may have in mind a group of people in that church who apparently were neglectful of their responsibility to the body. They felt that they could live off of other people and not have to worry about the daily needs of bread. So the Apostle Paul writes to them and calls them unruly because they were idle. They shirked their responsibility, leaving it up to others to take care of them. They wanted the benefits of being Christians without any of the burdens that come along with it. A Sunday school teacher was, on one occasion, desiring to impress upon her students the miracle of God in nature. And so she pointed to a large plant that was in the corner of the room, and she asked her students, and and who made those beautiful flowers to grow? And in one chorus, the children all answered back, God did, except for one little boy who was kind of the P.S. at the end of the response. And he said, yeah, but the fertilizer sure helps. (laughs) Sometimes we have the same idea. If God wants to take care of his church, he'll do it. But the fact is that God has given all of us a responsibility as well to be a part of meeting the needs of the church. And so the apostle writes to the church and he says, regarding these folks who want to to have the blessings without the burdens, who want to shirk their responsibility in the work of God, he says, admonish them. That's a very strong term, actually. We saw it before in verse 12. It means to warn. It means to sternly rebuke or even to discipline. Notice that in verse 12, it was a responsibility of the leaders of the church to do the warning, whereas here it's the responsibility of all of us to do the admonishing of those who 
are irresponsible. Every family, including God's family, has rules and expectations and ways in which it is to function. Our family has those kinds of things, and I'm sure your family does too. The absence of those things absolutely brings chaos to a home, and it leads to waste. Some of the ways we do things in God's family are biblical. Sometimes the ways we do them are cultural or practical. But the point is that the way that we as a body decide to operate and work together establish a standard of action for all of us. The practical application, really, of this particular phrase, admonish the unruly, is well summarized, I think, by Chuck Swindoll in in one of his writings when he says, even though it may hurt, there are occasions when Christians should be confronted and corrected with the truth. These times of admonition are needed when a fellow believer is unruly, that is, when he or she is undisciplined, disorderly, and irresponsible in carrying out his or her Christian duty. As members of Christ's family, we are expected to behave ourselves by being where we ought to be and doing what we ought to do. When we become derelict in our Christian responsibilities, God calls on other members of his family to confront us with this fact and to exhort us to resume fulfilling our Christian duty. Well stated. Did you know that there was a custom in the Roman army in days of old that if anyone was caught deserting his post for any reason, for any amount of time, they would cut off his little finger? as a permanent reminder to be faithful in his responsibilities. One can only wonder if there was a similar penalty in the church of Jesus Christ, how many of us would be minus a pinky. We have responsibilities, and the apostle says that you and I are to admonish each other to fulfill the responsibilities that God gives to us. That we're not to be among those who get out of step or out of rank or who are insubordinate. If we are going to minister to others, we also need to encourage the faint-hearted because there are many among God's family who are faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted means literally small-souled. Small-souled. It refers to someone whose spirit tends toward despondency. It's somebody who is easily worried or who is fearful. It refers to those who are easily overtaken with discouragement or debilitated by anxiety. It can even refer to those who are prone toward physical or emotional frailty. He says that we are to comfort those who are faint-hearted. We are to speak tenderly to them. To speak near is literally what he says. We are not to cup our hands around our voice and yell at them from a distance. 
But we are to come close enough that we can whisper into their ear the kinds of encouraging words that they need. This same word is used in chapter 2 and verse 11 of this epistle, where the apostle says regarding fathers that they encourage their children, just as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians. A father sensing the upset in his child will put his arm around that child and draw the child aside and whisper words of encouragement in the ear. I had two sons who were badly beaten this weekend in basketball. It's hard for a father to take, to sit on the sidelines and see the other team rack up the score without mercy. It's hard to listen to the coach of the other team smirk and laugh as he watches your son's team go down to defeat. There are certain unchristian thoughts that come to one's mind in times like that. But it's harder on the player. It's important to take that child aside and say, hey, you know what? There's more to it than winning the game. It's important to take that child inside and say, you really made some terrific shots. And do things that will lift up the spirit of the one who has become faint-hearted. God's children are the same way. There are times when you and I experience defeats. And we go down in flames, as it were. And we need someone to come alongside us in those moments of our small-souledness who will whisper in our ear words of God which will encourage and lift us up. The Thessalonians were caused anxiety by a couple of things, perhaps. Perhaps it was the persecution that they were undergoing. It was severe. Or maybe it was anxiety regarding what happened to their brothers and sisters, their loved ones, who had already been killed, would they participate in the future coming of the Lord? Well, Paul has answered those questions. Whatever the reason that there were Thessalonians discouraged, Paul says to the body, encourage them. <clears throat> a word of encouragement or a deed of assistance, a reassuring promise, these can make a lifetime of difference to someone who is passing through a battle. And so let's be sensitive to that. But the apostle goes on. He says that we are our brother's keeper in another way. He says, help the weak. This thought really doesn't uh, do much more than elaborate upon the, the last one, but it takes it a little bit further. It refers here to someone who is absolutely without strength, who is weak spiritually. Maybe it was, in Paul's mind, those in, in Thessalonica who were weak to sexual temptation. For he commanded them strongly in the fourth chapter to be pure. God has called us to purity, he says. So avoid sexual immorality. Stay away from things that will bring sin to your path, he exhorts them. And so to the weak, the apostle says to the others, help them in their temptation. 
Maybe there were some who were left without strength because of the pressure of persecution. Paul is saying, help those who are weak. The fact is that all of us experience times of weakness or times of of burnout in our lives when we've given it everything we can and we just don't feel like we can go on. Some find it always difficult to face life without help. And so we who are strong must be sensitive to them. To help them means to lay hold on them. The idea is to keep yourself directly across from them. Some of you work in physical therapy and you know the skill that you learned in how to help a person who is weak. To lift them from the bed or out of the chair. To place them in a position where they can be served or helped or where they can rest. You learn how to keep yourself across from them and to keep your back straight. You learn how to lay hold of them in a proper manner. That's Paul's word here. He says, give therapy to those who are weak. Hold yourself directly opposite of them and lay hold of them to lift them up. Others of you are lifeguards. I always admire those people who have learned to swim that well and who've acquired the skill of being able to rescue others who are drowning. He says, if you see someone who is going down, go out to them and bring them back in. That's the point. Help those who are weak. How do we do that? Well, patient reassurance shepherd-like care, perhaps doing things like the Samaritan did for the man that he found who had been beaten and left for dead, helping those who are weak. There are those, you know, whom God wants you to help this week. Let's not neglect doing that. There was a little boy one time who wandered into... uh, a meeting where the gospel was being preached. He was very poor, really a street child, as we would call him today. And having heard the gospel preached in that meeting, he was genuinely converted. Not long afterward, there was a man who had known him from his days past who tried to shake him in his faith and posed a question to him to try to make him stumble. He said, if God really loves you, Why doesn't he take better care of you by telling someone to give you a new pair of shoes? Well, this little boy who had just been saved a few days thought for a moment about that and tears began to trickle down his cheeks. And he said, well, I I, I guess he does tell somebody, but, but they just forget. There are some people out there, folks, who are weak and who are burned out. It may be somebody seated right next to you. Or maybe someone that you work with, or some person who lives in another state, and God is saying to you this morning, help that person. Lay hold of that brother, that sister, to lift them up and give them what they need at this moment. If God is saying that, I urge you, don't forget it but do what he tells you to do. 
And then our Lord says that we are responsible to be patient with all. Now, I could wish that there were lots of verses in the Bible on patience that had been left out. It would make my life a lot easier if I weren't reminded constantly to be patient. Because that is not a natural virtue of mine. That comes as a surprise to some people who know me only in this kind of a setting. But those who know me more intimately know that it's not one of my prime qualities. Especially those who ride with me in the car when I'm all alone. If you get the drift of what I'm saying. It is so difficult for me to be patient with unlicensed drivers who are on the road. How about you? What is the point where you are tried regarding patience? I am sorry to tell you this morning, no, I'm really glad to tell you, that the Word of God says to all of us who struggle with patience, (laughs) be patient. Be patient with all. I wish there had been some kind of qualification on that. Be patient with those who are good drivers, because that's easy to do. Be patient with those who think like you do, because that's easy. But he says, be patient with all. I believe he means even the unsaved. Be patient. The idea means to be long-suffering or long-tempered regarding them. Show restraint in the face of provocation. Hang in there tough when you're facing pressure from other people, when you are disappointed, when someone gives you pain or hardship. He says, refuse to yield to inappropriate anger. One who is patient does not give in to short or a quick temper, is not irritable or negative, but rather is considerate, even, laid back, and moderate. Certainly this is a disposition that is needed in dealing with people where you work, right? And it's needed, too, with some of the people in your small church. Occasionally it's even needed with your husband. Rarely is it needed for your wife, but once in a while. Be patient, he says, with all. And finally, if we're going to be our brother's keepers, which we are commanded to be in a healthy and godly sense, we must seek the good for all. The opposite of this is retaliation, which he talks about. Retaliation is more natural to human nature. When someone slugs you, you slug them back. There are some who even use scripture to try to attempt to to justify personal revenge. The scribes did, you know, in Jesus' day. They used that verse in Exodus 21, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if you have listened carefully on television, you have heard that very recently from some of their descendants in Israel. And I'm not saying it's improper. But I am saying and using it for personal revenge, it's improper. Jesus refuted a false scribal inference drawn from this verse 
says one commentary. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was originally intended to restrain people from going beyond equal retaliation in punishment for social wrongs against the community. That's the context, you see. The scribes had distorted the commandment's purpose by using it to justify personal revenge. What had been given as restrictive law had through human traditions been transformed into permissive rule. In speaking out against this tradition, Jesus emphatically set the tone for his followers in forbidding personal revenge altogether. He says that you and I are to pursue earnestly the good of all. Everyone is bearing some kind of a burden, and so it's easy, it's important rather, for you and for me to be kind. To treat others the way that we ourselves want to be treated. Let me once again summarize this in closing by referring to one of Swindoll's comments, where he says, Rather than return caustic comments with more caustic comments, frowns with more frowns, fists with more fists, and backstabbing with more backstabbing. Christians are exhorted by the Lord to always seek that which is in the best interest of both believers and unbelievers. In other words, we are to return evil with good, ugly remarks with kind words, frowns with smiles, fists with attempts at reconciliation and backstabbing with genuine forgiveness. If we would honestly obey this command, historians would be unable to sufficiently record the revival that would sweep Christ's church and the vast numbers of people who would convert to Christianity. Do you remember the story that John Benham told about the lady in the tribe on Taliabu that he met? Or rather, it was a man, a father. His son had been playing with some other children, and they decided to find out what would happen if you poked a hot stick in someone's eye. And so they held down his son and poked the hot stick into his eye, blinding him in that eye. The father went to those who did that, and this father had been converted as a result of the ministry of Steve and Mary Linetti in that place. And he said to those responsible for this incident and to the parents, if it were not for the fact that I were a Christian, I would kill you. But I am a Christian, and I forgive you. That man on Taliabu, by his example, says something to you and me. When we're placed in positions where we are victimized, where we are treated unfairly, where we are exploited and hurt. Seek the good, he says, of all. We are not called to be isolationists. God is no isolationist. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay the price for our sin. And God has called you and me who name Jesus as Savior and Lord to be ambassadors, not isolationists.
As the Father has sent the Son, so he has sent us into the world. To bring the world the message of hope in Jesus Christ. And to lovingly address the hurts and the needs of those around us. That is our duty. It is an order which is delivered to us by divine dispatch. We must first see the need around us and then respond as Jesus would respond. Sympathy sees and says, I'm sorry, but compassion sees and says, I will help. How will you help? Is someone out of step with God? Warn them. Is someone despondent? Comfort them. Is someone weak? Help them. Is someone irritating? Be patient. Has someone done evil? Do good. God gives us here our duty to others. And I'm grateful that God also gives us the resources we need so that we can do our duty. He gives us the word where we get the wisdom to know what can be done to help. He gives us the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to respond. And he gives us the church to support us in our response to the needs of others. One preacher on an occasion took two phrases that were familiar and made a sermon out of them. The two phrases were, what in the world are you doing? And for heaven's sake. The sermon went like this. What in the world are you doing for heaven's sake? What in the world are you doing for heaven's sake? What in the world are you doing for heaven's sake? What in the world are you doing for heaven's sake? And he concluded, what in the world are you doing for heaven's sake? Our responsibility to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would be like you and respond to the needs of others as you would respond. Sometimes we find ourselves so overwhelmed with our, our own needs that it's difficult. Lift us from our sense of need to see the sufficiency that we have in Jesus Christ to fulfill our duties to others. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by our own selfishness and sinfulness that we don't respond. Forgive us and give us a heart of repentance that we might see and with sympathy say, I will help. May we be more than hearers of the word but doers as we go our way. And because we are yielded to your spirit and walking with you this week. May our lives make a difference and may we do something in this world for heaven's sake. 
Let's stand together, please, to be closed in prayer. <clears throat> Let's just sing the chorus that I think you know. Oh.